Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 39. The grassy knoll is not without its groupies. The people that grabbed onto the idea of a conspiracy and turned it into a cult-like gathering of characters who apparently, through their own self-appointed powers, had clairvoyant and clear sighting of what actually happened and could even tie it back to the overall mysterious characters in the overall conspiracy plot. Sadly, these characters began to creep into the narrative around the JFK assassination. Well, they have made murky water even murkier. They made it hard for some of the edgier, but possibly more legitimate research to take hold. I guess for the more legitimate researchers, it was like climbing a rock wall that had been doused with olive oil. There was no way to get traction, even if traction was warranted. Not when these more far-out and sensational stories kept coming to the forefront of the dialogue. Well, the next couple of episodes are definitely sensational, but I would view them as edgy and not cult-like. We are going to listen to the first of two very edgy stories today, rather famous ones in Grassy Knoll lore. Today, in two separate episodes, episode 39 and episode 40, we're going to cover the Babushka Lady, and in the episode which follows that, episode 41, we'll cover Badge Man. I'll explain the nomenclature and its origin as we get into the episodes themselves. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 39. The Babushka Lady is the now infamous moniker given to a mysterious woman who was situated right there on the south side of Elm Street. Her nickname arose from the headscarf she wore that day, which was similar to scarves worn by elderly Russian women. Babushka literally means grandmother or old woman in Russian. She was standing right behind Charles Brem and his five-year-old son, Joe, right there in Dealey Plaza right at the time the fatal shot was fired. And there is photographic evidence that she was operating a camera as the motorcade was making its way through the plaza. Can you believe it? In the Much More film, we can only see the back of her, but she is wearing a long tan coat and holding both her arms by her face, standing in a wide stance, pretty much the way you would stand if you were holding a camera of some sort. And then, in the Zapruder film, Taken from the opposite direction of the Much More film, on the opposite side of the street, we get a better look from the front that she was operating a camera. From this combined photographic evidence, we know that this camera, presumably a movie camera that the Babushka lady was operating, well, it may very well have taken footage of the school book depository and the grassy knoll at the time of the fatal shots. Again, that's not a certainty but it has high potential given where she was standing and the line of sight from there to the presidential limousine and to the school book depository. That is why this mystery witness remains so important. This witness and the film that was in that camera 
the film that has never been officially retrieved or proclaimed as being extant, could be the key to resolving whether there was a shooter on the knoll. Yes, there were other films taken that day from almost the same spot, but not quite. The next film in particular. None of them really got a definitively clear view of anything that would solve the case. A shooter identified definitively in photographic evidence, that is. So if this film did exist, and if this film really was taken and developed, well, only a precious few have probably seen it. And most people on the earth have never seen it. And the tragedy, of course, is that it may never be seen. I wonder who has seen it. But the point is that it could possibly contain some new and very incriminating photographic evidence that could break the case right open. The good news about the Zapruder footage is that it shows Babushka Lady was operating a camera. The bad news is that the camera is right in front of her face. So no good look at her face in the Zapruder film for identification purposes. The Bell film, taken by U.S. postal worker Mark Bell, shows Babushka Lady from behind again, and right after the fatal shots, still standing but closer over toward the grassy knoll from her previous position on the south side of Elm Street. After the shooting, Babushka Lady can be seen in other photographic evidence as having crossed Elm Street and joined the crowd that went up to the grassy knoll. She is last seen in photographs walking east on Elm Street. As I said, neither she nor the films she may have taken have ever been positively identified. However, in 1970, a woman named Beverly Oliver told conspiracy researcher Gary Shaw at a church revival meeting in Joshua, Texas, that she was the babushka lady. Oliver stated that she filmed the assassination with a Super 8 film Yashika movie camera, and that on the Monday following the assassination, she turned the undeveloped film over to two men who accosted her at the Colony Club as she was arriving at work that night. The men identified themselves to her as FBI agents. According to Oliver, she obtained no receipt from the men who told her that they would return the film to her within 10 days. She never got it back she did not follow up with any form of inquiry. She reiterated her claims in the 1988 documentary, The Men Who Killed Kennedy. In fact, as late as 2013, she would reiterate that she has never followed up personally with an attempt to retrieve the film herself through legal means. Why? Well, she says she's just been scared to do so. But others have. And she produced evidence of that, a response from the government to prove that such a request had been made and denied, and, based on the language in the government's response, might be inferred that they actually had received it, that they actually had the film, but had not retained it. More on that later. There are skeptics, of course. According to Vincent Bugliosi, Oliver has never proved to most people's satisfaction that she was even in Dealey Plaza that day. Beverly Oliver's claims were the basis for a scene in Oliver Stone's 1991 film, JFK, in which a character named Beverly meets Jim Garrison in a Dallas nightclub. 
played by Lolita Davidovich, she is depicted in the director's cut of the film as wearing a headscarf at Dealey Plaza. And speaking of having given the film she shot to two men claiming to be FBI agents. Clearly, this was based on Beverly's account of what happened to her. Most of the witnesses that were in close proximity to the presidential limousine that day, at the moment of the fatal shot, were identified right at the scene, or identified themselves shortly thereafter and came forward to the authorities. As we know, the Babushka lady never was publicly identified by authorities at the time of the assassination, and never did come forward at the time. One of the few unidentified but closest and principal witnesses near the presidential limousine that day as the fatal shots rang out. Well, unidentified if you don't count those two FBI agents that came to see her on Monday night, November 25th. It certainly is a central question as to why, if Oliver was the babushka lady, that she did not immediately identify herself to authorities. But there is more to hear from Beverly Oliver on that topic, so I'll refrain for the moment. And after all, she was only 17 years old at the time. Beverly Oliver would claim later that she left Dallas shortly after the assassination and went into hiding, worried that she might be murdered. I know that seems on its face just too far-fetched for a witness in Dealey Plaza, especially one that wasn't known to the authorities by name, at least at that moment. But there was more to her story, actually truly more to her story, that lent some credibility as to why she might have been, at the time, been more worried than the average witness. You see, Beverly worked at the Colony Club, which was located in downtown Dallas and was right next door to the Carousel Club. The Carousel Club was owned by Jack Ruby. These were a couple of the last two clubs in Dallas that represented the last little bit of the burlesque nightclub format in the city. And again, she was a mere 17 years of age at the time. And she was a pretty young woman in 1963. The clubs were rivals, but they also coordinated their efforts too, at least when it came to attracting the clientele that made their way into those types of clubs in the day. They even alternated evening showtimes so that patrons could go from one club to another during the same night and see a show at uh, both clubs and actually even other clubs as well. And the girls that worked at the clubs went back and forth a bit to visit, even though the two club owners were competitive. The girls were friendly enough to the point that they would all frequent the other club to see their friends and watch the other club's shows. Beverly Oliver was a showgirl at the Colony Club, and she claims that she was not a stripper there. She said that she tried it once and never again after that. I wonder if being a stripper at 17 was illegal back then in Dallas. It probably was. Well, as she tells the story, she was just a dancer and a singer. You'll hear it shortly in her own words. <laughs> Much more colorful than I could tell it. She knew Jack Ruby. There is no doubt that is a fact. Not a lot of controversy there. But the story around her experience, knowledge, and dealings that are pertinent to the assassination study, well... Some folks and some researchers seem to think that those facts and stories seem to have gotten progressively more enhanced over the years 
including her accounts of the moments in which she and others saw Oswald inside the Carousel Club. And the same goes for some of the other assassination characters, such as David Ferry and others. And obviously, any connection that could be proven, showing that Oswald and Ruby knew each other, even just knew each other and no more, would strongly suggest the existence of a criminal conspiracy to kill the president. Or at least something way more sinister to be present, way more sinister than the Warren Commission made it out to be. I think Beverly Oliver may have said it best in her own words when she made a statement in November 1994 in front of the Assassination Records Review Board regarding her own legitimacy as it relates to being a witness in the JFK assassination. This is what she said, and I quote, I was a 17-year-old girl that was at Dealey Plaza that day taking pictures of the president when he was assassinated. I never wanted to become a public figure over this, I never intended to. Until my name was accidentally leaked to the press in 1972, I was not a public figure. It has caused me great grief. It has caused me a lot of concern in my life. I have been called a liar as recently as today. I have been called a hoax. I am neither a liar nor am I a hoax. I am who I say I am. I was down there that day, standing between 20 and 30 feet from the president when he was shot. I was taking a movie film, which on the 25th of November was confiscated by a man who identified himself as an FBI agent. I have never until recently started trying to inquire about my film because I am extremely patriotic. Did not see that there was any reason to because I had assumed all these years that it was locked up until the year 2029 as evidence. And I am still not sure that there is anything sinister about it. And that is why I am here. I would just like an explanation as to what happened to my film and where it is. And that is the only reason that I am here. Well, the mystery is thick around this character. To this day, it's not a certainty who Babushka Lady really was, or is. Some will tell you that the identity of this woman is still unknown. But today, we are going to meet Beverly Oliver, who eventually came forward and claimed to be this most infamous Dealey Plaza occupant on the day of the assassination. So you see, Beverly Oliver's story is fantastic in the strict definition of the word. Filled with truth hyperbole, and, if you believe the skeptics, maybe even a couple of Texas-sized lies, too. I'll leave that up to you. You, the jury, to decide. Honestly, I'm not sure which parts are which here. I just know there is plenty of fantastic material to fill two whole episodes on Beverly alone, and it may be some of the most fascinating and fantastic material we have listened to yet. Well, enough from me. I happen to have found a great presentation that Beverly Oliver gave back in 2013, the 50th anniversary year of the assassination. She was 67 then and still going strong. It's a long one, almost 90 minutes. We can't reproduce it all in one episode, so I have tried to edit it down a bit and we are going to give it to you in two separate episodes, episode 39 and 40 as I mentioned. So I hope I have retained the best of Beverly, so to speak. Despite the criticisms that have been heaped on Beverly, and there are plenty, I find her to be entertaining, genuine, 
and credible on many topics. There are moments, though, in the story... Well, I'll just leave it at that. I hope you have as much fun listening to it as I did, and I know you will have your own view of what is truth, what is hyperbole, and, like some of her critics proclaim, what parts of the story might just qualify as a Texas-sized lie. So here we go. Thank you, and thank all of you for being here today. Uh, I appreciate the privilege of being able to share with you November the 22nd, 1963. While it's painful, I feel that it's also necessary because the murder of our president, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, is still an open murder case in Dallas County, Texas. And I hope, now, as you listen to me, understand that I'm a natural blonde, okay? <laughs> and uh, I still have hopes that two things are going to happen. One, that I'm someday, before I leave this world, I'm going to be able to see my film, which was confiscated on the 25th of November. And secondly, that I get to get on a witness stand and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God, and see justice done for the murder of our president. We are one nation under God, indivisible for liberty and justice for all. And people, that does mean justice for presidents who are murdered in downtown Dallas, too. And if we don't fight for it, if we don't fight for it, we will not get it. If we ever shut up, we will not get it. And people are continuously asking me, Beverly, why do you keep on riding a dead horse? Number one, it's not a dead horse. It's a dead president that was shot 20 feet in front of me. It's not a dead horse. And I'm getting old. I'll just go ahead and tell you so you don't have to do the math. I'll be 67 years old March the 14th. I'm getting old. Most all the people down there, except for the Newmans and myself, as far as I know, are dead. There's got to be a torch to pass this burden onto. There's got to be a somebody, a torchbearer, to take it over when we're all gone. And please keep that flame burning. Like I said, I was a 17-year-old child who thought I knew everything, like all 17-year-olds do. <laughs> and I worked at the Colony Club in downtown Dallas, which was next door to Jack Ruby's Carousel Club. And uh, I adored President and Mrs. Kennedy. They were the first presidents born in my century. And they were absolutely stunning and they had such class. And at 17 years old, I was trying to decide what I believed politically. And uh, I was just so enamored with them. And so when the chance came that President Kennedy was coming to Dallas, Texas, I was going to do anything and everything I could to see them. And um, the night before, uh, I went to a party with Jack Ruby. Now, I never officially worked for Jack Ruby as on his paychecks, but I did tin bar for him after hours, for his after hours parties. I did go out of town with him on occasion as his arm dress. No, I don't know if he was homosexual or not, and I didn't care. Back then, it was no big deal. I never, had, uh, he never even put the pass on me because I was 17 years old. I was jailbait, but I looked pretty good back then, and I made a nice arm piece. Um, but the night before I went to a party with Jack and met several interesting people, and maybe I'll talk about that later, 
And the next morning, I rode a cab from Fort Worth over to the parking lot next door to the Colony Club where we parked our cars by the month. And I got out and uh, put on my walking shoes, and I got a bag out of the back of the car that still had my bikini in it from the summer. It was one of those straw bags. I know you ladies that are as old as I am and will remember those straw bags we used to put everything in. And then I realized it was chilly, so I put my coat on over the bag. And uh, even through hypnotism, I can't remember when I took the bag off my arm, but that's neither here nor there. And I kept walking. I didn't intend to go to Dealey Plaza that day. I just wanted to get close enough to the president so that I could get pictures with my new camera. And so I kept walking and looking up the side streets and looking up the side streets and looking up the side streets. And you couldn't get anywhere close to the sidewalk, to the curb, nowhere close. So if, if Dallas really hated President Kennedy like the press said back then, I sure hope we never get a, a, a president here that we love because you won't even be able to land a plane in left field. And I kept walking, and finally I get to Houston Street. And I look, and they said, well, how did you know which way they were going that day? Well, like I said, I'm blonde, but I didn't fall off the turnip truck. The people were lined up that way. So even I could figure that out. So I just walked across the triangles and got down there to where I'm standing right there. Now, there has been controversy all of my life since 17 years of age. Where is that really Beverly down there? That wasn't her. I dare anybody to say that profile right there is not mine. That's my profile. Those are my feet, and I'll show you those shoes after a while. And the reason why I was called the babushka lady is because of that scar right there, that scarf. A man named Dick Sprague, who was with the House Select Committee on Assassinations, dubbed me the babushka lady. That is a babushka scarf. And uh, so that's what I was dubbed for many years. I never wanted to be brought into the public eye over the assassination of President Kennedy. Number one, I was scared to death to do that. And I don't know if I have these on my PowerPoint or not, but I do have death threats, and I have a big thing here if y'all want to look at it after the, after the presentation with lots of documents that we won't have time to go over tonight. And uh, I was so excited that day. Uh, I had a brand-new... Yashika movie camera right there. And I was just, I can't tell you how thrilled I was. And I walked and walked and walked, and I got down there, and I went across there, and I got right up next to the curb. Wasn't anybody between me and the curb. And the only way I can explain Dealey Plaza to you that day was, is have you ever been in a situation where there was so much static electricity or so much excitement that it literally made the hair on the back of your neck or your arms stand up? Well, that's the way it was in Dewey Plaza that day. And you could tell when the president was getting closer because the, the, the crowds got louder and louder and louder as he got closer. And then he turned off a of mainstream street and took a right onto Elm, and the crowd just went crazy. And then he gets to Elm Street, and he makes a left. And shortly after he makes a left onto Main Street, uh, there was a noise. And the noise went bang, bang, bang. And I remember thinking that day, who in the world, do you remember those poppers, you people that are over 50, that you just throw against the ground and they explode? Well, that's what I thought they had. And I thought, who in the world would let their children bring something like that down to a crowd like this? And then just as the president uh, got past me, and I skipped, let me go back. Just as he got past me, there was a ba-boom! And when... That baboom happened. 
the whole back of President Kennedy's head went up, out, over the back. It looked like a bucket of blood had been thrown out the back of his head. I'm going to skip ahead for just a little bit now because I need to do that for myself. This is a picture taken of me by Jack Ruby at the Continental bus station as he walked me back to get on my, in my, get back home when I was a child. And that was in the carousel. This was when I worked at Six Flags Over Texas, the second year they were there. And that ha I put these in here because that happens to be the dark wig I had on that day. And that'll become a little more interesting a little bit. This is what I looked like back then. We'll go past that one. <laughs> and uh, this is uh, my first husband, George Albert McGann, who was the alleged leader of the Dixie Mafia. I married him in 66. This is Larry Ronco Jr., the person who gave me the camera that I was using down there that day. And he was the manager of the uh, Kodak exhibit at Six Flags. And this is another picture of Larry, or Lawrence Taylor Ronco, right there, me and another couple. And... Uh, he had gone up to Rochester, New York, where he lived, and came back home. And when he came back home, he had this beautiful new camera for me. It was a Yashica movie camera. It was an experimental prototype camera. It took a square magazine. It was so experimental, I could not go down and drop my film off at the corner drugstore and get it back in a week. I had to mail it to Rochester, New York, in a special envelope that he brought me. And it's so interesting when I do schools and stuff, the kids, one of the first questions they ask is, why didn't you look at the video? <laughs> they just barely had movie cameras on. <laughs> we didn't have videos. But this was right after they turned on to uh, uh, Elm Street from Houston Street. And this is some frames I'm going to share with you from the Zabruder film. And I'm just going to flip through them. Now, that is me coming up behind... Um, Josh, I can't think of his name. Cook, what's his name? Bre huh? Anyway, that's him and his son, Chuck Brim. Chuck Brim and his son, and that's me behind him, still taking pictures. And I started filming in concert with the uh, motorcade. And uh, I'm not going to show you the headshot right now. I will in a minute. Uh, this is Jean Hill coming into the picture right there in the red coat. She's known as the lady in red. Unfortunately, she's dead now, too. Uh, this picture is one that uh, Mary, uh, our, yeah, Mary Mormon took. It's the Polaroid, the famous Polaroid that she took. And they can never doctor it. And the reason why is because that is Jean Hill's thumbprint right there. Remember how you pull the pictures off and you had to put this stuff on them and you had to wait for it to dry? Well, when Jean Hill, Mary's friend, reached over to get it, she touched it with her thumb. So this is one piece of evidence that we know is just exactly right hasn't been tampered with, can't be tampered with. And there's some things that I take exception to down at De La Plaza now. One of them is where they have the X's. If you notice, uh, he's been shot in the throat here. He's like this. But he's not been shot in the head, at least completely. Here are those steps that you see going up to the pergola. And uh, so the front of the car was not way up here where they have it. It was right down there, almost to the steps. But one of the things that interests me about this particular picture is I think that the shot had already gone into the side of his head and was beginning to, it made his travel and was fixing to come out right there. See that pump knock? That's not coming from the school book depository. The school book depository is up here. And so that's not where that came from. 
This was right after the president was shot. And you see where I'm standing. I had walked around. I was filming. So I moved in concert with the, uh, with the motorcade. And there I am. And there's those steps I was telling you about. So he, he was just right there when he was actually shot. And everybody hits the ground. This is Gene uh, and Mary Mormon. This is Chuck Brim and his son. These are the Newmans over there. Everybody hit the ground except who? The blonde. I was so shocked. I could not move. They might as well have shot me for what it did to me. This is that tree that I just showed you. Where is everybody running? Are they running toward the book depository building? No, they're running toward the grassy knoll. These are men that were standing up underneath that tree directly across the street from the school book depository. But there they go up to the grassy knoll. Gee, I wonder why. Finally, I came out of my shock and uh, walked across the street. And I stood around because I was expecting them to want to talk to me. I had seen them take, you know, a couple of people aside and talk to them. And I think, well, surely they're going to want to talk to me in a minute. So I stood there for a little while. And at this time, I've gotten my bag out from under the coat. And it's right there on my shoulder because I was, uh, I got a battery out to make sure that it was still, I had enough battery power. And uh, I'm standing there and standing there and standing there, and I saw people that I knew. I saw a policeman named Roscoe White, who is married to Geneva White, who was the um, hostess for Jack Ruby. I know that's who I, I saw that day because I saw him every night as I went over the last show. We staggered our shows by the Theater Lounge, the Colony Club, and the Carousel Club, and we staggered the shows so the patrons could make all three shows. They could start here and wind up here and then go back over there for the next show. And... Uh, I recognized him, and I made eye contact with him, and I knew that he knew who I was even though I had on a black wig because he was used to seeing me in red hair, pink hair, green hair, whatever I decided to put on that day. And I know that he recognized me. So at that point, I felt the liberty to leave Dealey Plaza because, you see, we had no way of knowing what had happened to the president. And in my gut of guts, I so hoped that it wasn't him that got shot, even though I knew it was. I didn't want it to be. So I get back to the garage and I get in my car, and I drive down to 75, down Jackson to 75. And do y'all remember the old Holiday Inn that used to be down there in downtown, just out on 75, that was a you know one-story, one-level, old-timey motel? I got to that point when I heard the radio. My radio finally started working out of an old car, and it didn't work downtown. And uh, I heard the news that my president had died. And I pulled over into that parking lot because I didn't trust myself to drive. I was crying so hard. And I don't know how long I stayed there and cried, but I got home and my brother was sitting in the living room and cleaning his gun. And he looked at me just as point blank as he could and he said, I thought I might need this. That's all he said. I went back to my bedroom. I took some two and all sleeping pills and knocked myself out. I woke up and told, called my boss in time to tell him I wasn't coming to work that night at the Colony Club. He didn't like it. He uh, he says they were open that night, but I don't remember anybody being open in downtown on the 22nd, but I won't argue the point. It doesn't matter. I wasn't there. And the next day, uh, and that afternoon, though, my mother had woke me up because uh, she wanted to go down and see the flowers, and my mother didn't drive. She never did drive. 
And so I did take her down there that afternoon, and we took pictures, and I have those pictures if you want to see them. They're going to be printed in Robert Groden's new book that's coming out hopefully in about four months. I've never given anybody the privilege of using those pictures before. And the next day, I was keeping myself drugged up, and the next day my mother woke me up again. She said, I want to go down and see the flowers again. So I took my mother down there on Saturday to see the flowers. And... Um, or Sunday, Sunday, and um, then I went back to bed, uh, Saturday night when I went back to bed, I knocked myself out again with two and alls, and uh, I woke up on Sunday morning, and I always, my husband, who's right down there in the red coat, stand up, Charles, that's my handsome husband, of almost 43 years. <laughs> And uh, um, I still, to this day, sleep with my TV on. And it drives him nuts, but he doesn't sleep, but I do. <laughs> and uh, I woke up to a horrendous thing on television. was my friend Jack Ruby shooting a man on TV, national TV, whom two to three weeks before, in his club, the Carousel Club had introduced this man to me as my friend, Beverly. This is my friend, Lee Oswald. He's with the CIA. Well, at 17, I didn't know what the CIA was. At 66, I'm still not sure what the CIA is. I didn't think anything about it because Jack was always introducing this guy and that guy and this guy and that person. And, you know, he was a name dropper. But I did recognize that guy that he shot on TV as the person he introduced me to is my friend Lee Oswald with the CIA. Well, I can tell you that really put the fear of God in me. Finally, my mother, who was pretty wise, realized that I was doing drugs. <laughs> and she made me get up on Monday night, and she said, you are going to go to work. You are not going to stay here and become a vegetable. You are going to work. So I drug myself out of bed, I got dressed, and I arrived at the club at 7.45 like I always did. And there was two men on the landing. When you went to the colony club, there was a, a stairway, another, a landing, and another stairway, and into the club. And there was two men waiting on that landing, but I didn't think anything about it because a lot of times people would wait there for the rest of their people to show up. But as I approached these two men, the taller one stepped forward, and he said, Miss Oliver, and I said, yes, sir. He introduced himself, and he said, I'm with the FBI. He had proper FBI identification. He said, we understand that you were down at the grassy place. They didn't call it They didn't call it Dealey Plaza. They said the grassy place, taking pictures when the president was killed. I said, uh, yes, sir. He said, uh, where is the film? Have you had the film developed yet? I said, no. He said, where is the film? I said, it's in my camera. He said, well, where is your camera? I said, in my makeup kit. We always carried train cases with us that had our makeup in it. He said, well, we want to take this, that film and get it developed and look at it for evidence, and we'll get it back to you in a few days. Well, unfortunately, laying next to my camera in that bat, in that train case was a Prince Albert can full of marijuana. Now, those of you who know the history of Dallas knows that in uh, a few years earlier than that, I think it was 58, uh, Candy Bar uh, was arrested and sentenced to 15 years in the penitentiary for less than a half an ounce. And I had a whole Prince Albert can full. So when they asked me for my camera, I stooped down, opened the lid up where it was pointing toward them, 
took the tra- the makeup tray out, handed it to the FBI agent named Regis Kennedy, and handed him the camera and put the, thing, the tray back in like that, because I would have given him my soul if it asked for it, just to keep him from looking in my makeup kit. And he said, well, we're going to take this film and look at it, and we'll get it back to you in a few days. That was November the 25th, 1963, and no one has seen my film since. It must have been a pretty good film. That's me across the uh, the street, and I'm going to show you something. I usually do it later on and do it now. See, the, see those shoes right there? Right there? Here they are. There they are. And I have a little miss, I have a little deformed toe that you can see it when you're up closer to it that makes a little mark on my shoes. Right there they are, just like in the picture. Also an interesting thing, I had yellow paint on the bottom of them. There was some new yellow stripes painted on the curbs that day. There's a close-up of the shoes. If you want to see them afterwards, you're welcome to. I described the policeman that I saw on the knoll that day back in 69 or 70. I don't remember now. I told them that he had on a Dallas policeman's uniform partially. He had on policeman's pants. He had on the policeman's shirt. He had a badge, but he didn't have a hat, and he didn't have a gun. Everybody thought I was a crazy little 17-year-old or whatever I was then and uh, got a lot of flack over it. Well, a couple of years ago, maybe four years ago now, this picture showed up from, uh, it's a still off of the, uh, can't think of the man's name right now. Anyway, it's a film off of another person who was down there, and they took this still and sent it to me. This is behind the fence, and these people had run up the grassy knoll, up the pergola steps, See this man right here? It's a Dallas policeman. There's another one. I saw two there that day. The other one was Patrick Dean. He has on a badge, but he doesn't have on a gun belt, and he doesn't have on a hat. So I feel a little vindicated now. This showed up on the 25th. It's an FBI document memorandum, and it says one of the... Let me just read it off of here because I can read it better. Maybe. It says, one of the 35-millimeter color slides depicted a female wearing a brown coat taking pictures from an angle which would have undoubtedly included the Texas School Book Depository building in the background of her pictures. Her pictures evidently were taken just as the president was shot. Approximately five other individuals in the photo were taking pictures at the time. And if you notice, that was the morning of the 25th, and my film was confiscated the evening of the 25th. I think that's a little bit too much coincidence. I have never made an actual request for my film because I'm scared to. Uh, But other people have. And this was made by a man named, I don't know what his name was now, Woods, Mr. Woods. He specifically asked for my film, and they said, and it is an FBI letter, it says, the film which was taken by Beverly Oliver was not retained by the by this office. Doesn't say supposedly been taken, claimed to have been taken. The film which was taken by Beverly Oliver was not retained by this office. Retained, according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, 
means to keep in possession or use, according to the World Book Encyclopedia Dictionary, the word defined as to continue to have or hold, keep. Does that mean they ran it across the, across the hall so they could say that? This is a Texas Monthly that uh, was uh, a man named Gary Cartwright. Let me go back. A man named Gary Cartwright um, writes several articles even today for Texas Monthly. And I believe this was a, I don't remember when it was, but anyway, he actually used to believe in the single bullet theory. And um, he even wrote articles about the single bullet theory. And then in um, 1990, he wrote this article, and there's a little inset in this article. My friend Bud Shrake. Now, some of you will remember the name and some of you won't. He used to be the main squeeze of our former governor, uh, Ann Richards, uh, who shared an apartment with me on Cole Avenue in 1963, recently refreshed my memory. Ruby and other characters from the Carousel Club, including an unforgettable stripper named Jada, who, by the way, no one saw after the assassination, uh, hung around our apartment. After, uh, after the assassination, Jada told us Ruby once introduced her to Lee Oswald at the Carousel Club. While they were having drinks, Beverly Oliver, a singer from Next Door Colony Club, uh, stopped by and was also introduced. For some reason, I chose to forget Jada's story when I wrote about Ruby in 1975. Jada is dead now, but I phoned Beverly not long ago and asked her if she remembered. Sure do, she said. Ruby introduced him as my friend, Lee Oswald, or Lee from the CIA. So when people say that there were a lot of things that some of us witnesses have changed our story, no, we have never changed our story. People don't report it accurately, but he did. This is a man named Timo McConan. He, he is the Geraldo Rivera of Finland, Texas. Uh, Finland, Finland, Texas, gee. And uh, in uh, 1994, I think it was, he brought me out to Ranger, Texas, some photographs that he claims are from my film. I cannot vouch for his veracity, uh, and he's had a major stroke now, uh, but I want to share those pictures with you, and you can draw your own conclusions. This is Dealey Plaza. It's an air shop. A man named Orville Nix had a camera down there that day, too. Orville Nix was standing right here. The president was shot right here. And Orville Nix himself says that he did not get the headshot. These are the four stills that this man was able to get out of a film in a safe in New York City in the UTI building. Uh, um, another author told him how to get there and where they were and how to find them and what to do. He was to say that he was a foreign film company making a documentary on how to restore old films. Do you see anything right up there? Do y'all see that? Okay. These are these are film uh, sli uh, stills off the Zabruder. There he is, still up there. Do you see? And you know that it's a person because of the flesh tones. Okay, he's up on the running board of a, I think it was a Rambler station wagon. The president has just been shot. See that bunch of blood right there? And then it came, it went up and out and over the car, and it looked like a whole bucket of blood was being thrown out of his head. 
See how the gun is following the car? Did you notice that? The next slide that I'm going to show you is breathtaking. It is a digitized inch by inch piece of this right here that you're seeing. I'm as a cameraman, Orville Nix. This is on the opposite side of the road to Abraham Zabruder. The remarkable thing about the Nix film is that without See, realizing they're saying it's the Nix film, but I showed you where Nix was standing. And it's only with the latest image-enhancing techniques that we can reveal the previously undetected contents of his film. Clearly, the presidential limousine is in the foreground, behind the grassy knoll on which Zabruder is standing. And to the left of the monument, at the top of the knoll, a figure apparently in a firing position, close to an estate car. Comparisons with another amateur film shot seconds after the assassination reveal that the man and the car have gone. Amateur cameraman, Orville Nix. I'm just going to play one more time so you can see the end of, the of it again. Abraham Zabruder. The remarkable thing about the Nix film is that without realizing it, he'd captured the gunman on camera. And it's only with the latest image-enhancing techniques that we can reveal the previously undetected contents of his film. Clearly, the presidential limousine is in the foreground, behind the grassy knoll on which Zabruder is standing. And to the left of the monument, at the top of the knoll, a figure apparently in a firing position, close to an estate car. Comparisons with another amateur film shot seconds after the assassination reveal that the man and the car have gone. I was standing so close to him that whenever he was shot in the head, I heard Jacqueline Kennedy say, oh my God, he's been, and I couldn't tell if he said hit, if she said hit or shot. When he went forward, she pulled him forward, pushed him down with her elbow and crawled out over the back of the car. That's the first time he went violently forward. She pulled him forward. And then, I didn't hear this, but we know from other library recordings has been released from certain other presidents that uh, Conley said, oh my God, they're going to kill us all. They're going to kill us all. I'm going to try to speed this up a little bit because this just has to do with the verification of my film. And if you don't believe it was mine by now, you're never going to believe it. So um, I'm always asked why the president was killed. I don't know. Uh, I'm not a researcher. I'm just an eyewitness. And I don't know all the theories. I don't want to know all the theories because, like I said, someday I hope to get on a witness stand and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And I don't want what I saw to be adulterated with what Gene Hill saw or Mary Mormon or the Newmans or anybody. I want it to be my testimony. So when I go speak at symposiums, I don't go in and hear those other people talk. If it has anything to do with Dealey Plaza, and I've had the honor, and it is an honor, to be able to uh, speak on symposiums with Dr. McClellan, who was the person who was at the head of Kennedy, when his hand went in and he said, oh my God, he doesn't have a brain. Uh, and he still has the shirt that he wore that day completely covered in Kennedy's blood. And I do count it a privilege to be able to hear him, but what I saw doesn't involve what he saw. And so I will go with him. This was me when we were doing the book. 
And I actually got to go kneel on President Kennedy's grave and put flowers on it. I wouldn't let Coke or Charles or my daughter go. <laughs> and that was, that was a big honor for me. Now, one of the questions that particularly the young people ask me all the time is what has the death of a president be 50 years next year? 49 years ago, November the 22nd. What has it got to do with us today? I believe with all my heart that if President Kennedy had lived, there would not be 50-some-odd thousand names on a black wall in, Ken in Washington, D.C. We're short that many men because President Kennedy was killed. Do you think freedom is free? It's not. I believe that if President John Fitzgerald Kennedy God bless America and protect all those fighting for us today. Our freedom is at stake. Everything that we believe in as a country is at stake. And I do believe with all my heart and soul that we are one nation under God indivisible with liberty and justice for all. And please pray with me that justice someday for our president will be found. We need to know the truth because the truth will set us free. Join us on episode 40, where we continue the second half of the fascinating story told by Beverly Oliver, the so-called babushka lady. Thank you for listening to episode 39 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. <laughs>